I want to ask you a question this morning. How did you start the new year? How did you start the new decade? What was your January 1st like? I am sure for the vast majority of you, it was a, a wonderful, joyous start because you want it to be wonderful and joyous. I'm sure if those of you who stayed up past the stroke of midnight, you hugged your family, you wished each other with sincere greetings, a happy new year. It is the thought, perhaps some of you think, that if I begin the new year right, it will be indicative of the rest of the year. So if I start January the 1st right, my rest of the new year will be a wonderful year. Would you like to know how my new year started on January 1? It didn't start off very good. It started off with a major fight between Cindy and myself, where there was yelling and there was crying involved in the public streets of Taipei. Now, I think we felt like we could do that because no one knows us and we were fighting in English and no one could understand us. At least that is the hope. You see, it was a series of misunderstanding that led to lots of miscommunication coupled with the stress of traveling that spiraled out of control in the heat of an emotional moment and emotions were ratcheted very high. Words were said and it resulted in a major fight. Now some of you are sitting this morning shocked that your pastor could fight with his wife publicly on the streets. I've never portrayed our family as a perfect family. We are a family just like yours, a work in progress to be sanctified, to try to be more Christ-like. Speaking of family, as a side note, next week we will begin a new sermon series called Home. We will be looking at topics that speak about life's messiness and family dysfunctions. And we will be looking primarily in the book of Genesis at the life of Jacob, and you won't want to miss that. But let's talk about that fight. And by the way, uh, I do have permission from my wife to share this story or else we would be fighting after this service. And so after the fight on the street, none of us were really in the mood uh, to go around Taipei. And so we went back to the hotel where we retreated to each side of uh, the small hotel room like boxers at the end of a round. We gave each other the silent treatment. We were brooding. We both felt that we were in the right. And sadly, our children were caught in the middle. They didn't know what to do. And they just simply sat on the bed in stunned silence. After a few minutes, one began to tear up and said, You both should not fight. It's New Year's Day which made us both feel bad for making our children feel bad. And so we said, sorry, children, we really shouldn't be fighting in front of you. But then each of us began with our litany of reasons why we were in the right, as if trying to win the opinion of the jury, which was our children, and that did not help the situation. Then one of our children, to our surprise, unprompted, said, you know, you really should forgive and make up. We said, these are adult problems, just give us some time. And then to my surprise, one of them came over to me and began to pull on my hands and pull me to stand up and to come to the center of the room. 
Another child goes and does the same to Cindy and pulls her up and pulls her to the center of the room. And there we were at the center of the room, angry at each other, but face to face. And then, again, to our surprise, unprompted, our children took our hands and put it so that we were hugging each other. And then one of them said, now kiss. <laughs> we were caught a bit surprised, to which one of the children said, just like what you tell us to do when we're fighting, to make up, go hug each other, and kiss. At this point, we were smiling in amusement, for at that moment, our children became our parents. And so we forgave each other and talked through the issues. To have a major fight on the first day of the decade, the year, is not something I think most of you would so desire. But it reminded me that we often fall back into our old selves. Now, we can pretend on the first day of the new year that all will be well. But let me tell you something, and you know this to be true. Just because you don't fight on the 1st of January doesn't mean you don't fight on the 2nd or on the 3rd or on the 4th day. Eventually, your old habits will come up again, and you will revert back to who you are. Unless there is a tangible change of heart. Unless there is a desire for the transformation that comes with the newness of the new year. And I know that many hope for such a thing as they make resolutions and make new decisions about how they want to be as a person. And I hear it so often, everyone wants to be a better person. What does that mean? That's so ambiguous. I want to be a better person. And yet we all revert back to our old selves by February. I'd like to propose to you this morning five new ways for how you can live based on the scriptures if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to present to you a new way of living that is a transitional transformation of how you can be a Christ follower. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to take a look at verses 1 to 7. We're going to be in the Old Testament the first part of this year. Now, for those of you, as you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, who are unfamiliar with this book, it's written by King Solomon, and it's written to his descendants. And of course, by virtue of the fact that it's the inspired word of God is also for us as the readers. Solomon writes this book towards the end of his life. And he writes it because he loves his children, and he loves his descendants, and he wants them to avoid the pitfalls of the life that he has fallen into. And so he will develop a thesis, a major thought in this book. And his thought is this, the truth that a life lived apart from God is utterly meaningless. In the old King James, vanity. A life lived apart from God is meaningless. And he will use 12 chapters to develop this idea, this truth, this thesis. And he will build it to a climax in chapter 12. But it's interesting as you read this book, you get to chapter 5. And surprisingly, there is a change of tone. It's as if suddenly there is an urgency. He's suddenly concerned that his children may not read this book until chapter 12. Or perhaps he may not live long enough to finish this book. And so quickly in chapter 5, he summarizes what he's trying to say in this book. Which is that they are to take their walk with God seriously. 
his descendants, we as readers, are to start walking a new life today. And from these seven verses, let me suggest five new ways of living. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. Look with me. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give them the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Here the Bible is very clear. Verse 1 says, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. To put it more succinctly for Gen Y, shut up and listen. That's what verse 1 is saying. You see, Solomon is encouraging those who are reading this book, his children, to cultivate a life of listening. A new way to live is to cultivate a life of listening, number one, if you're taking notes. For many of us, we hear a lot of things. There are audible sounds that enter into our mind, but we aren't actively engaged in listening with a desire to obey. We don't like to hear advice, and you know how it is, especially as children or teenager, when your parents say something, you hear their voice, you think it's nagging, and you want to argue with them, and you want them to tell you five reasons why it is so, and you are ready to debate them. That's how it is when we come to the Word of God. God gives us His Word. He tells us how we are to live. He says, listen with the intent to obey. And we say, well, Lord, you may not really understand how life is lived in the 21st century. Let me update you on the realities now that there are social media vehicles and other technological advances. The first thing we do is we begin to argue Instead of listening. And in wise saying, Solomon says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. With wisdom, when you draw near, you draw near to God to listen with the intent of being changed. You see, for many of us, we come to church. If you had perfect attendance last year, you would have heard 52 messages, 52 sermons but if you look at your life and you've not changed in any way, then those 52 sermons were simply audible sounds that you heard, but they are of no use. If you have changed, then the Word of God has made an impact in your life. We hear many things, but we're actually not listening. We go through the motions of hearing, but we don't listen with an intent to obey. One of my favorite stories is told of the President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. One of my favorite stories, I've told it before. But it puts to point this concept. One of the things the president hated was he hated enduring the long receiving lines at the White House, especially at a reception. And he complained to his aides that no one really pays attention to what is being said. Everyone gives the perfunctory small talk. So one day, obliged to go attend a White House reception, he decided to try an experiment. And this was his experiment. Every person who came to shake his hands in the receiving line, he would whisper the words, I murdered my grandmother this morning. That would be his experiment to see if they were really listening. And so as they came to shake the president's hand in the receiving line, he murmured and whispered the words, I murdered my grandmother this morning, to which the guests responded with phrases like marvelous Keep up the good work, Mr. President. We are proud of you. God bless you, sir. No one was listening until the end of the line, the ambassador from Bolivia 
He came and shook the president's hand, to which again, the president muttered the words, I murdered my grandmother this morning. It was then that the ambassador finally was really listening. And so he paused, kept silent, and with all diplomatic grace, he leaned into the president and he said, Mr. President, I'm sure she deserved it. We hear many things, we do not often listen. The Bible is replete with the imperative, the command to listen, to obey. It's better than to sacrifice, to serve. That's what it says in verse 1. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Obedience in listening is better than sacrifice. Are you listening Will you take the time this year to really listen to what God is prompting you to do through His Word as a new way of how you live your life? Look at verse 2 and verse 3 with me. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your, note this, words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Now, the context of this passage is, don't speak so much. Think before you speak. And in verse 3, there is an analogy, an example. Just as many people who work hard would therefore sleep, their very deep sleep, and therefore they would enter REM sleep and, and dream a lot, just as a hardworking person falls into deep sleep and dreams a lot, so also a person who speaks a lot shows himself to be a fool. You see, my friends, it's true. We have a tendency to talk a lot, to make a lot of promises and commitments. And we were to record our conversation within a day and really play it back. It's just a lot of empty words that don't mean very much. We pray things that we don't intend to keep. We pray things that we can't keep. We make promises to God that we can't fulfill. We know that to be true. A lot of people make promises to God. But they have no intentions of keeping it. You see, what Solomon is warning his generation and our generation today is that it is a wake-up call, a high time to live a new type of life, a life of commitment. That's number two. A life of commitment. This is a generation, young and old, that, as many have noted, is an instant generation. We like everything now, today. And somehow, if something requires a long commitment, we don't fulfill it. If something is inconvenient, if something is no longer interesting to us, then somehow a lack of interest allows us to escape the commitments that we have made. There are a lot of people who at the beginning of the year decide and want to read through the Bible within a year. That's great. But then they get to March and they've forgotten the commitments they have made. They have forgotten that it is more important to finish well than it is to begin well. Everyone has great intentions of beginning well, but it is how you finish. We see this when people volunteer in the church. They volunteer in the church because 
In reality, they want to serve God, but there's a greater purpose because they want to get to know that special someone who they're interested in. It's so interesting that when that special person is no longer in that ministry, they too find a calling from God to move them elsewhere. Our commitment doesn't last very long, and yet the scriptures remind us that when God is looking to bless people, note this, God is looking for men and women who are committed. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it's one of my favorite verses, but it is a message of rebuke, even to me at times. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have war. Let me give you the context. This was spoken by the prophet to King Asa. King Asa was a good king. He started well. He was king at the age of 16 and he needed help. And so he was fully committed to God. He trusted in God. He had faith in God. And God blessed him. But somehow he grew up. He got too smart for his own good. He became confident in his own ability. He trusted his advisors. He trusted other nations instead of fully being committed to God. And so what happened? His heart no longer became loyal, faithful, committed. And God sent him a prophet to rebuke him and say, King Asa, I don't need you. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. They're looking through the entire world and they're looking for men and women who live a life of commitment. And what is he going to do? The Bible says, I will show myself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to me. I will prop up, I will bless, I will stand with the person who is committed to me. It's a good reminder to us, not that we don't have an option whether we should live a life of commitment, but it's a warning that we should, or else God may take his hand of blessing from our life and give it to someone else who is more committed than we are. It's not to scare you, but it is to warn us. You see, when you say, I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and then you get baptized, and you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over your life, are those simply empty words that He's Lord over your life, or are they words of a true commitment? Because the Christian life is a life of discipleship. It's a life of service. It's a life, perhaps, of pain, but it's a life of promise. It's a life of ridicule, but it's a life that glorifies Him. A life of commitment demands a high price, but at the end, it is a life that is worth living. We expect that our employees are committed to us. If we own a business or if we are employees, then we expect our companies to be committed to us as well. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're an employee and you enter a work contract with your employer. You sign as they sign the contract. And there in the contract, it says that you will be paid on the 15th and 30th of each month, and you will be paid this specific salary. It also has in that contract that you come in on these certain days and that you work from 8 to 5 or 8 to 6. Now, let's take, for example, that your company, after you both have signed this contract, a year later, when you see your check, payroll, it's... 100 pesos lacking. Would any of you be okay with that? 
probably not. You would go and complain to HR. You would go to accounting and complain. Even if it's five centavos less, you would complain. I certainly would. I would complain that I did not get what they said they would pay me. Or perhaps the company comes and pays you on the 20th of each month, not on the 15th. Would you complain? Sure you would. You don't mind getting the money earlier, but can't go past the 15th. And even if the company says, well, you know what? We're going through some cash flow issues. You want what was stated in the contract. You want them to honor and be committed to what has been written. But let's flip it around. What if you begin to come to work late and you come a half an hour late? And you come a half an hour late and you get screamed at by your boss. Most of you would not take it. You would go back to your cubicles and you begin to grumble. I can't believe my no good boss. They're so, they're, they're, they lack empathy. They don't understand. Don't they know it rained this morning? Don't they know public transportation is terrible? It's hard to get a ride on the MRT. I was only 30 minutes late. Only 15 minutes late. They don't understand. Why should we expect that one is fully committed to us when we are not fully committed to what we've signed on to? I hope you see my point. You see, there's a spiritual application. It is the same way. We treat God the very same way. We expect God to always answer our prayers now. We expect God to always be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. We expect God to always answer our prayers in accordance with our will. And if he doesn't, then he is no good. So God, you better show up and you better never fail us. And he doesn't. And then we flip it around and while he's fully committed to us, we don't do our quiet time one morning. And we say, oh Lord, I hope you understand. We were so tired. We'll do it tomorrow. Oh, we don't come to church three weeks out of a month. We show up once a month and we say, oh, God will understand. I'm, I'm going through some difficult times. And he does understand. But you can see the irony of it, don't you? Here we expect God to always show up, always be fully committed to us. And when he expects us to be committed to him, we grumble and we complain. We say, God, you don't understand. I hope that in this new decade, in this new year, we will wake up to the fact that there is a new way of living and that is a life of commitment. One where we understand that it demands a high price for us, but that's okay because we are followers of Jesus. That is part of our commitment to Him. And if you still don't understand that simply showing up is not the same as commitment, let me give you this business parable that gives you a stark reality between involvement and commitment. Involvement is not the same as commitment because a pig said to the chicken, what shall we have for breakfast? The chicken suggested, pig, let's have ham and eggs. The pig said, oh no, not ham. The chicken replied, why not? I'll furnish the eggs and you the ham. The pig then said to the chicken, chicken for you, it's involvement. For me, it's total commitment. Think about that. A life of commitment. Look at verse 4 with me. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no, note this, pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Solomon continues by cautioning people not to make rash promises to God and then not keep it. Simply put, 
Solomon is talking about responsibility. If you say something, you're going to do something, you better be responsible to do it. If you're going to sign something, no one is forcing you to sign it, but if you sign something, you better fulfill that obligation. Responsibility, something forgotten in our generation, old and young. And especially as it relates to God, when you make a promise to God, you and I have a responsibility to keep it. And yet so many people, especially Christians, forget that they are responsible to God. I can't tell you how many people who pray things to God and promise things to God in the hospital room. And the moment they step out of the hospital, they have forgotten all the promises they have made to God. And that's why no one wants responsibility. That's why, again, there's something in business called Toomey's Rule. And Toomey's Rule says this, It is easy to make decisions on matters for which you have no responsibility. And that's why in the church, everyone wants to be a consultant. Everyone has a suggestion. And everyone has great ideas. And when you ask them, you've got a great idea, would you do it? Oh, no, not me. I'm just suggesting. Someone else can have the responsibility of executing on it. Easy to talk in life, you know that. But responsibility changes you. When you are responsible for something, it changes how you live. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was preaching in Southern California. And you may have heard this story before, but it's so true. Preaching in Southern California, and my host had contacted me and said, you don't need to rent a car. You can use our spare car. And I thought, how nice of them I can use their spare car. And in America, usually the spare car uh, is an older car, a jalopy of a car. It still operates. And for me, I get to save money on the car rental. And so they picked me up at the airport and they brought me to their home in Southern California, Orange County. And there, they brought me to their garage and they said, Pastor, here are the keys to the car. And our spare car is a Porsche. My eyes got big. I was very excited inside because I'd never driven a Porsche. And this was Southern California. In my mind, I began to imagine myself with a top down, driving 100 miles per hour down Highway 1, down the coast. Wind blowing through my hair, just enjoying the good life, doing ministry for Jesus. I was so excited, I called my wife in Manila to tell her that I will be driving a Porsche this week. When I called my wife, somehow, wives have the gift of, of always sucking the joy out of everything. So instead of being excited for me, I remember her words very clearly. She said, Stephen... As you drive the Porsche, remember, do not hit anything. We cannot afford to pay for damages to this car. That week in Southern California, I had never driven so slow in my life. <laughs> I don't think I went over 50 miles per hour. So afraid now, after she says those words, that I will hit something and have to pay. Although, when I told my friends... Someone, uh, my friend told me, you know what, Steve, if they can afford a Porsche as their spare car, I'm sure they have enough insurance to cover it. But that's what responsibility does to us. When we are given a responsibility, it changes the way we live our life. And you and I have a responsibility, and that is to live out the Christian life. And that is to be the testimony, to be a follower of Christ, to be the church to the world. That is the responsibility that God has given us. For many of us, sadly, 
Christianity, the word Christian, is simply a, a certificate, a title on our wall which we mount because we said a prayer and it is not a way of life. And simply someone asks us, are you a Christian? We just point to the certificate. Yeah, that's what the certificate says. I'm a Christian. I pray the prayer. And yet we forget the responsibility that comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that responsibility is to live like one. It's as simple as that. Where following Christ becomes a way of life. Where Christianity is the way of life we live. We have so compartmentalized our life that we simply in the new year pray that we'll be better people. No, that will never transform your life in a new way of living. If you want to live a transformed life with the help of the Holy Spirit, you have to take on the responsibility to say, I have a responsibility to live for Jesus Christ to the world. That will change how you treat your wife. That will change how you treat your husband. That will change how you treat your employees. That will change the way you treat your parents, your grandparents, and every other relationship you have. It's a new way of living. Verse 6. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse, note that, and destroy the work of your hands? Here in verse 6, Solomon says, Don't give an excuse why you made a promise that you could not keep. The vows or promises you made are voluntary. No one forced you to make it. But once you make it, it's binding. And, and failure to fulfill it, we call sin, results in God's punishment. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 to 23. And yet so many people don't live out the promises they make. And so what does the Bible say? Why should God be angry at your excuse? Now, it doesn't mean we are shackled to the promises we make. God knows that we break promises to Him. But the point being is this. God doesn't want to hear your excuses. If you want to start new this year with a new way of living, may I suggest, number four, that you live a life without excuse. A life without excuse. The Bible says one day all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. And we will have to give an accounting of our life. And I don't think God wants to hear a bunch of excuses from us. Well God, you never knew the parents I had. No, sure he does. You don't know the type of teenagers I had. Sure he does. You don't know uh, and understand the work situation I have. Sure he does. But he never forced us to make promises to him. But he says... You better be responsible and be committed to the things you say you will do because I don't want to hear your excuses. You know, we often pick on the young people. We say, look at our young people. They waste time all the time. Pastor, my young child, over Christmas break, all they did was play computer games. All right? We always knock our young people. Well, what about the older ones? Let's say you retired at the age of 65 and God allows you to live to 85. And he will call those 20 years after your retirement from work to account. And he'll ask you, what did you do with those 20 years? Well, God, I, I slept. I deserved it. I worked hard for 65 years. Yeah, okay, you can rest. You slept. What else did you do? Well, I ate. Okay, that's good. Oh, God, I also went to church. Wonderful. 
God says, well, what did you do while you were in church? Well, I slept. Can you imagine how funny and how, uh, how interesting will be some of the excuses that we hear at the judgment seat of Christ's day? Bible is very clear. It is in heaven that we rest from our labors and our works do follow us. And there should be no fear when we stand before the Lord. We should welcome the opportunity to tell him how we have lived for him. Not a bunch of excuses. And I think it's high time our generation no longer allows what we are tagged as millennials, Gen Y, Gen X, Gen Z, baby boomers. Whatever we're tagged as, we can use it as a crutch, as an excuse. But it shouldn't be. Because God is omniscient. He sees everything. How foolish to think that we can give an excuse that will ring true in the mind of God when He sees everything. You and I know the Word of God. We are a Bible church. We teach you what God expects. He wants no excuses, and yet we have so many of them. So many of us, we simply give excuses. We just call them lies. They're really lies. A lot of excuses is simply passing the blame. Blaming someone else. Well, Lord, it's someone else's fault. I once asked someone, why don't you come to church? They said, oh, we can't come to church because my parents won't allow me. I said, come on, sir, you're 45 years old. You can make your own decisions. And I know in our culture, we hide behind the crutch of my parents won't allow if you are married with kids, you are your own family unit. That's what the Bible says. And you can make your own decisions. You are not beholden. And yes, I know about respect, and I know about honor, and I know about our culture. But we hide behind our cultural crutch to give an excuse to God for why we can't do certain things. Family is an easy go-to when we're looking for excuses. You and I, as the book of Ezekiel reminds us, we'll be called to account for each of our own actions. Don't pass the blame. And there's a lot of people who, who use excuses through the means of justification. I did it, yeah, I did it, but, but the circumstances caused me to do it. Well, well, Lord, I hope you understand because, you know, I'm in a, a field where there are not a lot of Christian singles. And so, you know, that's, yeah, I hope you understand. And we justify in my mind the struggle Oh, Lord, I hope you understand. I was ill. I was desperate. That's why I went to offer prayers to another God, just with the, with the hopes that maybe I'll get healed. We justify a lot because we are great at compartmentalizing. And I always find it funny because God sees everything. And we know that to be true. Then what in the world are we doing living a life of excuse? If you have time for everything else, you have time for God. If you have time to watch television, if you have time to watch the news, if you have time to watch Netflix, which everyone does, if you have time to read a newspaper, then you have time to spend time with Him. No excuses. God doesn't want to hear your excuses. He knows your heart. Be honest with Him. Be responsible. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands. The Bible is so clear. Verse 7, look with me. 
For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, not this, but fear God. Solomon concludes this section by simply saying, dreams and words, they are meaningless. Simply fear God. Talk is cheap, like daydreaming and, and useless activities. Fear God, honor Him. Take God seriously. That's the point. It's because we don't take God seriously that we don't listen, we don't keep our promises, we, we fail in what we tell him we will do. We treat him like a pet. God spelled backwards as dog, and most of us treat him just like that. We only need him when we love, when we need some loving, and we push him away when we don't. And that's the problem with this generation, young and old. We don't take God seriously. He is kind and compassionate as we see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is God himself. But remember, he's also a God of holiness. He's a God of righteousness. He's the God of the universe, where with one snap of the proverbial finger, we would fall, drop dead. God is gracious, but he has a limit to his patience. We see that in Scripture. God is gracious and he's patient. For some, like the people of Israel, he let them go in their cycle of sin for hundreds of years, generation after generation. And finally, he says, enough, that's it. And that generation is somehow surprised. Oh, Lord, you're not very patient. And God has to remind them through history of their people of how they did not shape up. Do not be surprised, my friends, when God decides, perhaps this year, he says, enough with this person. I can't use him anymore. I can't use her anymore. I have been so gracious and I blessed this person and they made promises to me and they said they'll live a new life and they, they go back to their same old ways. Enough. I'm going to take my hand of blessing from them and I'm going to move it to someone else. And I've said it many a times, you never want God to discipline you and you never want his hand of blessing taken from you. Again, not to scare you, but so that you are warned that it shouldn't be a surprise that there is an end to God's patience. The Bible clearly speaks about this. Fear God. That's how Solomon ends this section. Respect Him, honor Him, take Him seriously, because when we do not take Him seriously, then it affects the way we live. A new way of living is to become serious with God in a way that understands Him for who He truly is. And this morning, as we begin the new year, we are afforded the opportunity to again live the first day of the rest of our life. And that's enabled through the shed blood of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, to allow us to start over. How then will you live? You see, at the end of the day, even if you don't fight on January 1, if you can hold out for 24 hours, it doesn't mean you will never fight for the rest of the year. So fight on the first, but be true to yourself. And understand, this is who I am. Sinner saved by grace, needing a new way of living. And I hope you will consider in this new way of living to cultivate a life of listening, a life of commitment, a life of responsibility, a life without excuse, and a life that takes God seriously. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a reminder even for me 
resolutions that are based on the superficial will not really endure. It requires each of us to foundation ourselves in the Word of God and to see how we can live our lives in a new way of living. Not simply changing an aspect of how we live, but a complete new way of living. If God's Word this morning has challenged the hearts of some of these men and women, maybe we can take one of the five and ask you to help us, Lord, to help us to be responsible, to fulfill what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be committed, to really listen with an ear towards obedience, to no longer give excuses for why we do what we do, to take you seriously. Challenge the people of your church so that we can make an impact this year and not allow this new decade and this new 2020 year to simply come and go. Perhaps it will be the year of transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.